you guys can open up your Bibles to uh, the book of Luke. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll get one to you. Um, as always, feel free to keep it if you don't own one or you want to give it away to a neighbor or a friend. Um, it's a hardback edition, quality, quality Bible. <laughs> Uh, but we are in uh, Luke's Gospel, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 4, and we're going to close out chapter 4 this morning. We're getting ambitious with, uh, I think, three verses. Verses 42 to 44 is where we're going to read. Let me read that, and then we will um, we'll pray and dive in. Luke four forty-two, And when it was day... He, Jesus, departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray. God, it is um, it is my prayer, it's my my burden, my desire that this morning, uh, though we're in a room with a bunch of other people, we would all get this sense that you are meeting with us individually. That it would be as if it's just you and us. You're just talking to me. They were alone with you even in a crowded room. You're the great physician of, of souls. You're the great healer. You're the savior. You wash your bride with the water of your word. And, and God, we need to get away with you. To get alone with you. And have you wash us up. To have you put us back together. We are sinners in need of your grace. God, we need conviction of sin where we're haughty and stubborn. And we need reassurance of your grace where we're broken, despairing, and condemned. God, we need you desperately to meet with us in a personal way here this morning. And that's my great prayer, Lord. Would you do that through uh, our time in your holy word? It's in your name that we ask these things. Amen. Let me uh, begin just by asking you a question. Um, I wonder when was the last time that you got alone with the Lord? Um, and I, I mean, really got alone with the Lord. Uh, I'm not just kind of talking about, you know, oh, I flipped through the pages of my, you know, New Testament this morning over a cup of coffee, or I, uh, say a few prayers with my kids before bed or whatever it is. I mean, when is the last time that you experienced, um, something, uh, similar to like the lines that come from this old hymn where, where it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory grace. When's the last time that the things of this world just kind of grew dim to you and it was like you were just there with him and, and you were alone with him and, it, and you felt like you were in his presence and like he was looking at you like you could see his smile, like you could sense his love. You felt alone with him. This Obviously, it can happen before work, or it can happen before bed and in your prayers and things, but there's something different about this kind of experience, right? Where, where you get the sense that it's just kind of you and Jesus, and everything else in your life is secondary. 
at that point. We might be prone to think that um, such experiences are kind of extraordinary. They're like maybe once in a lifetime kind of encounters with God that happen while you're on the mountaintop or whatever it is. And we might, we might be prone to kind of think that uh, this stuff isn't what we are to expect or even pursue on a daily basis. But it's going to be my contention throughout this. I think this is what we as the children of God desperately need all the time. To be pursuing uh, alone time with the Lord in such a way that our hearts are just being poured out. And His heart's being poured into ours. We connect with Him intimately. Our text, uh, if you look at it there in verse 42, begins uh, this way. And when it was day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place. A desolate place. It's this desolate place that I want to focus on this morning. I'm going to ask three questions about it, okay? I want to ask first, what is the desolate place? Second, where, where is the desolate place? How do I get there? And then third, why, why do I often avoid the desolate place? Why do I kind of have this resistance, this allergic reaction to the desolate place? So first, what is the desolate place? Um, I want to begin by seeking a greater understanding of kind of what it even is in the first place that Christ is departing into. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. Well, what is that place? Now, the word um, translated desolate here is really just the adjective use of, of the same word that's other, other places in Luke translated wilderness. Okay? So, essentially what we are seeing is that Jesus is departing and going out into a wilderness-like place. A place that's empty, a place that's, that's, uh, that's barren, a place where he is alone. A place that's desolate. Now, when we make that connection with the wilderness, we can kind of get a little bit deeper into our understanding of this desolate place. Because when you look at the Bible and you kind of um, understand the scriptures, it develops the theme of wilderness. Here's what you find. I think I put this in your notes. I'm not going to go into the various texts, but you can look at them if you'd like. But what we see is that the wilderness is a place of trial, Deuteronomy 8.2. That it's a place of temptation. I mean, that's where Jesus just faced the devil was in the wilderness. What's he doing going back there? It's a place of trial, a place of temptation. It's a place of want, Luke 9, 12. It's a place of demons, Luke 8, 29. It's where the demons are roaming. It's where the demons drive men. They go out into the desert. They go out into the wilderness. And it's a place of danger, we see Paul say in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Fearing for his life. That's the wilderness-like place. That's the desolate place. But intriguingly, there's another side to this uh, wilderness in the Bible. As the theme is developed, here's what we also see, and it's awesome. It is a place of revival and intimacy. Hosea 2.14-15. Do you know that text? It's where God says, listen. You guys are getting so fat and happy with, 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 with the things of the world. Here's what, and you're forgetting about me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lure you back out into the wilderness. And I'm going to bring you into tighter relationship with me again. It's going to be like when you came out of Egypt. And we were tight. It's the place of revival. It's the place God brings people to renew intimacy with them or with him. It's a place of rest and refreshment. This is Mark 6.31 where Jesus calls the disciples to get out into a desolate place so we can rest. It's also a place of fullness and provision. Luke 9.17, that's where uh, the two loaves are broken and and shared among 5,000 is out in the desolate place. Something happens in the wilderness. Something not just hard and difficult, trial, temptation, demon, but something wonderful. And as we'll see this morning, the wilderness is also a place of vision and clarity. 
It's a place where, where the things of the world grow strangely dim and we see God face to face in a way that we otherwise wouldn't and hadn't. It's a place to be alone with God. And this is precisely why Christ, as we are following him in our text, has come to the desolate place. This is what he's departed into the desolate place to do. To be alone with God. To face reality in a fallen world. I don't want to believe the, the kind of sham and, and, the, and all the, the parade and the lights. I want to go behind the screen. I want to get out of this and into the wilderness where I can deal with reality. This place is barren. This place is broken. I need my father. That sort of stuff. It's what he's doing out there. But let me let me show you in particular what he is up to in the desolate place. Because uh, we might at first be left kind of wondering. Uh, Luke in our immediate text doesn't say what Jesus is doing out there. Doesn't say. Just says that he went out there, departed. But we're not um, left to our imaginations uh, because actually... Down in Luke 5.16, which hopefully is just maybe a page away for you, chapter 5.16, Luke, uh, we're, we're given kind of Jesus' typical MO for the desolate, desolate place, how he handles himself out there. This is what um, we read. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And pray. And it's interesting here because the, the language um, is, is talking about a habitual, a holy habit, a rhythm of our Savior. That he would, on a regular basis, withdraw to desolate places and pray. And so, uh, we are then left to assume at this point, Jesus is out there alone with his Father and he's praying. And in fact, when you look at Mark's gospel, who records the very same story, this is precisely what he says. This is Mark 1.35. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And Mark includes this. And there he prayed. So he is alone with his father. He is seeking God uh, out in the desolate place. And here is... Um, what I want to drive home for us uh, for a moment. The very Son of God, I mean, the one who was with the Father from all eternity, the one who has this kind of spiritual power and all these things, is modeling for us something significant. Even he is, is, is retreating to the wilderness, so to speak, to, to be refreshed in the presence of God. He, even he is getting alone with his father, needs that time, wants that time, craves that time. And he's going. And we remember, we remember about our Savior that not only is he God, but he is man. And more than man, he is the perfect man. Right? He's, it's kind of like watching him, it's, he's kind of like a living sermon if you will, where as we watch him live, he's preaching to us how we ought to be as men, how we ought to be as creatures of God, as children of God, what God wants us to look like and do. And so my question is, are we prioritizing, are we valuing the desolate place? Because it sure seems our God-man Savior did. Even he who upholds the world by the word of his power, saw incredible value in departing, getting to the desolate place alone with God to pray. That should say something. Now, in our text, we're given even more about what this desolate place is and its value in the life of a child of God. Because as we follow Jesus here, what we come to see is that time spent in the desolate place is actually what kind of keeps him on track and gives him kind of a backbone to, to, to withstand uh, some of the people that come and have ideas about him. It gives him kind of a, a sense of stability on the mission. He, he, he's got the beeline, he's got the crosshairs, he knows what he is after because he spent time in the desolate place, he has a sense of what I would call the divine imperative. 
In other words, the mission that God has set him on, the to-do list that his father has given him. It's time alone with God that clarifies and, and, and brings conviction and, and, uh, uh, and, and develops in us a sense of his calling. Where we're to go, what we're to do. Let me show you this. Because it's while he is out praying in the desolate place that we read um, in the latter part of verse 42 into 43. And the people sought him. And they came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, here his words, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Did you hear that? You hear the conviction that he has of what he is here to do? I mean, he, he knows why he has come. That's the language of, I must preach. I know you want me to say, I can't. I must preach. I spent time with my father. I got my orders. I know what I'm doing. I must preach. I've been sent by him for this purpose. There's the divine imperative. I know the mission that I'm on. Time in the desolate place clarifies, brings conviction to the divine imperative for our lives. And as we think about ourselves here in this moment, it is the same. Time alone with God helps us as we move forward back into the world. We know how we're to orient ourselves and what we are to do. There are. Th- do you guys ever get stressed out by the myriad of options? I mean, even just as a pastor, it's like, I, I don't know what which ministries to focus on, which leaders to, to pour into, which, you know, it, it's hard, right? Well, we're going to see it a little later. Jesus, when he's thinking about who to appoint as apostles, what does he do? Spends all night in the desolate place in prayer. All night, what do I do? Where do I focus my time? Give me the orders, Father. It's the same way for us. We cannot, we cannot expect to have any clarity uh, regarding our calling, regarding the specifics of how God wants us to handle ourselves, what He might want us to say, who He might want us to reach out to, if we don't spend time in the desolate place. The divine imperative comes uh, from time spent with Him in the desolate place. I think um, too often, especially for those of us like myself, kind of type A, uh, we make our plans, we have our imperatives, we know what we want to do, we have our to-do lists. We could give you to-do lists for this year and next year and even five years down the road. Uh, we have these lists a mile long, but the question is, is, uh, are they derived from time alone with our Father? Are they derived from His will, desire, heart for us? Or are they derived from our own will and desire for our lives? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get financially uh, secure. Then I'm going to buy this or that house. Then I'm going to do this or that thing in my retirement. Whatever. And we make these plans for ourselves. But is it God's plan? When is the last time that we really put all things on the table? This should be daily, by the way. But when's the last time that we put all, all of our, all of the stuff on the table? And said, God, here I am. What do you want me to do? I'm yours. What is my must? I must preach, Jesus says. What is my must? What are you calling me to do? Why have you sent me? For what purpose are you sending me? Work that out in my life. I need to hear from you. I need to know what you want me to do. Maybe some of you are kind of always there in that place of living sacrifice. You know, like Romans 12.1, which is this living sacrifice. You're just always on the altar, always engaged. But I suspect some of you are like me. I kid you not, I can literally prepare an entire sermon. I mean, ministry stuff, Jesus stuff, spiritual stuff. I can literally prepare an entire sermon and then all of a sudden step back in my chair and go, wait a minute, I never asked God what He wanted me to say. I never said, God, here I am. I never spent time in the desolate place, in other words. God, here I am. What do you want to say to the people? 
What are my musts? What's the divine imperative here? What are you sending me to speak to these people? Now, going back to Christ's life for a moment, without such time in the desolate place, uh, alone with his father in prayer, hear me on this, Jesus may well have been subject to the crowd's demands. Have you ever been subject to the crowd's demands? We'll, we'll get there in a moment. Strengthened in spirit and renewed uh, uh, with a renewed sense of the divine imperative for him, he is able to keep on the narrow way, even if it means letting other people down. In other words, because he's been alone with the Father, because he's been in that desolate place, when the crowds come pressing in with all sorts of ideas for his life, he's able to say, no. I know you're not going to get it. I know it's going to bum you out. But I must do this, this, and the other. Think about this with me. Look at, look at, look at what happens here. The people of Capernaum. They, we read, come to him and would have kept him from leaving them. I mean, that's a pretty, you think that's kind of a good thing, right? These guys are just like, they love Jesus. They want him around. And Jesus looks at him and says, no. No. I spent time out here in prayer so that I could withstand this kind of thing. Because I'll tell you something, guys. I love you, but I've come from more than Capernaum. I've come to save more than Capernaum. In fact, we read in John 3, 17, I've come in order that the world might be saved. That the world might be saved. We're going beyond Capernaum here. You want to keep me for yourself? That's not what my father says. My father says, I'm going to be a savior for the nations. So I love you, Capernaum. I'm going to die for you, Capernaum. But I got to go. I gotta go. We learn very quickly that while Jesus is servant of everyone, hear me now, while Jesus is servant of everyone, he is not owned by anyone. He follows the order of his father and his father alone, even if it means letting people down. So we pull back again and, and we start to think about ourselves and, and how we can apply this, how the desolate place, the divine imperative relates to our lives at this point. Let me tell you something that I regularly pray for as your pastor is that God would give me both soft skin and a steel spine. Uh, what I mean by that is, I, I want soft skin. I want to be approachable. I, I want you guys to be able to come and, and, and uh, share with me your ideas. Give me your constructive criticism. Tell me what you want or don't want me to do. I want to, I want to be approachable. I don't want to be one of those pastors that all I am is steel spy. I'm just steel all in and out. Like, you can't get to me. I got my ideas. I'm the lead pastor. Shut your mouth. I got this under control. I don't want that. I want soft skin. I want you to be able to touch me, move me. I got to grow too. And I need you to help me. I want to be open to that. But, but, I want a steel spine, you guys. I want not just soft skin where I'm just putty in people's hands and I, I, you know, I'm like more of a politician than a pastor. I want to steal spine. I, I, I want to be a pastor of principle and conviction that I might say, hey, I know you want to do that or I know you don't understand why we're doing this or I know you don't like that verse in the Bible, but we're going to hold to it. We're going to hold to it. I want to sense that I, I want to be strong in the Lord so that even if obedience to Him means letting you down or making you angry or causing people to leave or whatever it is, I'm able to say, God, you're smiling right now. And that means more to me than a thousand smiles from people on earth. Does that make sense? Soft skin, steel spine. That's what I think we see in Christ. He could be touched. I mean, he loved these people. He was servants of all. And yet, wasn't afraid to let him down if the will of his father clashed with the will of man. 
You're going to need this sort of thing as well. It's not just for pastors or for Jesus. Okay, You're going to need this sort of thing as well uh, when your boss wants you to tell that quote-unquote white lie so that you can kind of, you know, uh, uh, save a little little cash. Or, or you're going to need it when your kids are just begging you to go see this movie that you just don't feel right about, but all their friends are going. And your, your kids are just going to hate you for this. No, you're not, I don't, you're not going. You're going to need this. Uh, I mean, there's so many examples. You, here's, here's a good one. It's right now, in our culture, I feel it as a pastor. You feel it as a Christian, I'm sure. Politically charged stuff that's going on. You're going to need this when the culture is telling you you're a bigot for believing that homosexuality is a sin and not according to God's design. You're going to need a steel spine in that moment, but not just all steel, where all we are is argument and debate and one-ups. You want to show them the love. You want the soft skin, but you need the conviction from God. And let me ask you something. Where do you get it? Where do I get the steel spine that allows me to to, to let other people down? Where am I going to find that? To stay with God, to stand with God like like. It's cool. We're, we're calling our our uh, our son's name's gonna be Levi. Okay, you gotta love the Levites. Right? They're awesome because when all the Israelites were turning on God in the wilderness, they stood with Moses. Nah, we're staying. Where do you find that kind of conviction? That kind, how do you get that kind of strength in the divine imperative? The desolate place, you guys. Time alone with the Father. It requires no, it requires no effort to kind of conform to the world because the world is pressing in all around us. Our phones, the TV, the billboards, the, it's all around. The news, it's just coming in. It requires a lot. It requires a lot of effort to stand against it. Going into that desolate place and crying out to our Father. God, what does your word say? God, what do you want me to do? I know what the world thinks. It's through a megaphone. What do you have to say? It's only when we spend time in the desolate place that the divine imperative becomes plain. And it's then and only then that we're given strength to let people down. In love for God and for them. Second question I wanted to ask of the desolate place. Where is the desolate place? Um, Hopefully by now you're coming to see uh, the great value of this kind of place. Of this kind of retreating and visiting God in this kind of place. Perhaps you're even seeing the need to kind of create rhythms and habits in your daily life to do this sort of thing with God. But then the, the question naturally arises, well, where do I go to get there? In congested, gridlocked Silicon Valley, where is the de- desolate place? I open up my Google, Google map and I go, okay, sh- tell me the address. Where is the desolate place? I'll go there. You just drop a pin. <laughs> We might initially think of uh, the more extreme examples, and this is fine. These are good things to develop into our schedules if we haven't. I mean, this is convicting for me, you guys. I'm not a, I'm not a stellar example. I'm not a living sermon like I wish I was. But you might think of, of, of retreats or things that you might do annually, quarterly, even monthly, right? Uh, times where you kind of get away uh, physically even. You leave your normal state of things to kind of clear your heart and regain clarity and connection with God. Uh, think here of, of, of things like you might go um, to this hermitage up in Big Sur. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's awesome. There's a hermitage in Big Sur, guys, up on top of this insane cliff. If there's an earthquake, you're in big trouble. But otherwise, it's the, it's the most beautiful place you've ever seen. It's hardly desolate, I should say. But it's amazing. And, and I, I had a landlord who would go there and do like silent retreats and things. And you could go there. Just get me away and let me just be alone with the Lord. Or... Um, Peter, who was up here, you know, leading in, in song earlier, was told, told me about a place in the Santa Cruz Mountains where they have like these prayer houses. I think they're even open to the public. You go 
there. Get Create a rhythm of just kind of driving up the road a little bit and going there. Or you could go for a long drive if that's your thing, up Highway 1 or wherever. One of the things that I do is on a weekly basis, if, as long as it's not raining like yesterday, I will try on Saturday nights in the evening to kind of get out and into the hills, get away from my manuscript and just pray and ask God to help, to, to, to intercede for you, to, to use the service. It, it helps me to get out of my little cubicle and, 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 and meet with him and cry out to him. So those sorts of rhythms are good. Uh, and kind of removing yourself from your normal environment is good. But I, I want to help us resist the notion that such a place um, is somewhere we can only visit every now and again. Like, ah, it was a great camp high because I got to go there. But now it's back down to the valley, you know, like, no, 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 I, I think that, that it's not something that we should just be kind of, you know, uh, ref, um, pushing to the side and saying, oh, every now and again. I think we need to try to develop rhythms of getting to the desolate place in our daily lives. And so for this, uh, let, me, let me press in a little bit more about where I think the desolate place is. I, I think the desolate place truly can be wherever we are. I do. I know Jesus even physically goes away, but I do think that the desolate place can even be where we are, wherever we are. It can be in your living room in the morning before the kids have woken up or even after they've woken up. You turn on a a cartoon network for a moment. I get to my desolate place. (laughs) It can be in your car while you're stuck in bumper to bumper traffic. You could, you could transform that place into a sanctuary, into the Holy of Holies. Your little car, if your heart is engaging God, I desperately need you, instead of just turning on talk radio or whatever. It can be in your cubicle at work as you cry out to God with all your heart. Don't care if your neighbor sees you. I don't care. I need Jesus. I need to know what he's saying to me now. I think the desolate place is wherever the child of God is willing to lay himself down, desperate to meet with his father. Let me give you an example of this from the life of the uh, late missionary Hudson Taylor. His son and daughter-in-law describe their experience with him traveling through China. This is cool. Listen, this image has stuck with me ever since I read it. It was not easy for Mr. Taylor in his changeful life to make time for prayer and Bible study. But he knew that it was vital. Well do we remember traveling with him month after month in northern China by cart and wheelbarrow with the poorest of inns at night. Often with only one large room for coolies, which were Chinese laborers, So often with only one large room for coolies and travelers alike, they would screen off a corner for their father and another for themselves with curtains of some sort. And then after sleep, at last it brought a measure of quiet. They would hear a match struck and seek the flicker of candlelight, which told that Mr. Taylor, however weary, was poring over the little Bible, his little Bible in two volumes that he always had at hand. From 2 to 4 a.m., was the time he usually gave to prayer. <laughs> the time when he could be most sure of being undisturbed to wait upon God. That flicker of candlelight has meant more to them than all they have read or heard on secret prayer. It meant reality, not preaching, but practice. You hear that? The desolate place for Hudson Taylor I mean, he didn't just make an excuse, well, I got a busy life, I can't get away, I got, I got kids or whatever. I know all that stuff is hard. It's really hard. But he didn't make an excuse to say, well, every, once a month I'll try, or once, you know, every quarter I'll try. He knew how vital it was for his soul. So he transformed a little place behind a curtain in a crowded room into the desolate place, the holy of holies, where he would meet with his father and find sustenance for his soul. Isn't that awesome? I think it's awesome. It's wherever, the desolate place is wherever the child of God lays himself down and says, God, I need you. Show up now. Speak to me. 
So, third question. If the desolate place is so vital to the child of God, and if we can enter into that place wherever we are at, why, why do we so often avoid it? I don't think I'm alone in this and that you just get distracted or you get somehow or other when I ask that opening question, I wonder when's the last time you really felt alone with the Lord? And again, that can happen in a crowded room behind a curtain with your kids right next to you. But you just you're there. It's just you and me here now. We're just alone. Why do we not seem to get to that place very often? Why do we kind of avoid even that place. I uh, have numerous ideas. I think there's probably a myriad of responses, personally, and for you to search your own heart on. I'll give you three of what I assume might be the most common. First, we avoid it because I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I don't have time for that sort of thing. That was like back for like the monks or the, the ascetics or the dudes back before their, you know, their, their bosses expected a lot from them or whatever. Or they had technology in their pockets. Everyone's emailing and texting and, you know, that was for them, not now. I can't live that sort of a lifestyle, retreating to the desolate place every day. I'm too busy. Surely the example of Hudson Taylor immediately convicts and inspires us on this point as well. From 2 to 4 a.m., we read, was the time he usually gave to prayer. (laughs) It's not fair to hold Hudson Taylor out. (laughs) But we'll read it later. Jesus spending full nights. And I'm going, well, how's that smart? I don't know. I guess spending time with God is more sustaining than even sleep sometimes. It makes sense. He's the one who holds us. So, let me tell you something. From 2 to 4 a.m. From 2 to 4 a.m. So I thought about this. That that's about the time when, when I attempt the noble task of like rolling over from my left side in bed to like my right side. You know? That's about the... like. Uh, uh, that feels hard at 2 to 4 a.m. That's my noble task. While I'm snoring... Hudson Taylor is in the desolate place with his father. Hudson Taylor is turning a little little flickering candlelight into the Shekinah glory of God's presence. And I thought, man, who's day planner, except for new uh, new mothers, <laughs> isn't uh, doesn't have any availability from two to four a.m. Anybody got? Uh, Actually, Tim Lim might as well. He's, I don't think he's here. He might be busy at that time. I think he works night shifts. But you know my point. He's going to find time somehow, some way, because he knows how vital it is. It's got to be 2 to 4 a.m. It's 2 to 4 a.m. Let me... Um let me read to you something from Francis Chan. He's going to kind of kick us in the pants a little bit. I'm happy to let him do it so that you can blame him, not me. Okay. This is what he says. There is no substitute for being alone with God. If you don't have time, you need to quit something to make room. Okay, Francis, thanks. <laughs> Skip a meal. Cancel a meeting. End some regular commitment. There is nothing more important you could do today. God literally determines whether or not you take another breath. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, Acts 17.25. Could anything be more important than meeting with the one who decides if you live through this day? Could anything be better? How can we not make time to be with the maker of time? Hear that? How can we not make time to be with the maker of time? What plans do you have today that you think so important that you would race past the creator to get to them? We claim that we are too busy for the desolate place, but ironically, perhaps paradoxically, it's precisely the time spent with the Father in the desolate place that, that, that gives clarity and conviction and actually brings success 
to all that we put our hands to do throughout the rest of the day. Otherwise, we just feel like this. You know, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. I don't have the sense of the divine imperative, the sense of the calm, his grace sustaining, and a sense of clarity what we're called to do. So, really, really, what we ought to find is that we are actually too busy to skip that time. We need that time, the busier we are, to bring clarity and efficiency to all that we're going to do for him. Second excuse. So first, I, I imagine we say, I'm, I'm just too busy. Second reason why we might avoid the desolate place, I get too lonely. I'm just not into the, the alone thing. I'm not the monk. I'm not that kind of guy. Our, 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 our culture... Uh, by and large, I think we, we kind of struggle to be alone. Um, we're kind of never alone. Our technology kind of means we're always plugged in. And like our friends, people, the news, it, it, we're just always connected. It's always there. And so even when we are alone, and I find this too, I had this kind of reflex for my pocket. Like the moment I'm in line or the moment I'm out somewhere and there's nothing else going on. Oh, you know, just doing this. And, 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 and we, we kind of have this allergic reaction almost when we unplug, right? And try to be alone with God. It's like, it's like things start shaking that shouldn't be shaking. Like, how do we spend alone time? We don't know how to be alone anymore. Scared of it. Kind of weird. Let me read to you. Again, it's a bit sobering. I'm sorry, but I, I thought these words were powerful. Here, let me read to you uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words on this point, coming from the book that we have at the Resource Table Life Together. He says this, There are Christians who cannot endure being alone, who have had some bad experiences with themselves, who hope they will gain some help in association with others. They are generally disappointed. Then they blame their fellowship for what is really their own fault. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. He will only do harm to himself and to the community. Alone you stood before God when God called you. Alone you had to answer that call. Alone you had to struggle and pray. And alone you will die and give an account to God. You cannot escape from yourself, for God has singled you out. If you refuse to be alone, you are rejecting Christ's call to you, and you can have no part in the community of those who are called. Now, those are, sounds kind of bleak the way he puts it, right? But what he's getting at is not quite so bleak, and it's very, very important. What he is saying is, the most important thing about you, the most important thing about you is where you stand personally with Jesus Christ. It's not the friends or the church you're a part of or the the creed you ascribe to or any of these external things. The most important thing about you is where you stand personally, heart to heart, with Jesus Christ. And he's essentially saying to spend so much time in community, even Christian community and all the gatherings and all the stuff, to spend so much time in that sort of community uh, at the expense of personal time with God in the desolate place is actually to put your soul in harm's way. Because God saved you to be with you. He calls you His bride. And that is an intimate thing. And if we are unwilling or unable or or not wanting to learn how to do this, or kind of allergic to being alone with Him, that is a problem. That's a problem. He wants to get us alone. He wants to allure us out into the wilderness to heal us, to help us, to address wounds. He wants to be with us in an intimate way. And here's the amazing thing. What you find out is that when you get away with the Lord in that way, it actually enriches your time with others. There's not that kind of codependency. I need you and you and what do they think? And I need them to fix it because God's doing the work. In the desolate place with your heart. And you move into community ready to pour out rather than just needing to drink in. Make sense? So I'm too lonely, but man, I'm telling you, he wants to just fill that lonely spot, that desolate place with the fullness of his fellowship. The fellowship you were created for. 
third thing that I think, and this is the, the final reason here that I'll give you, uh, why we might avoid the desolate place. I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't know what, what to do. If we're honest, I, I actually think this is part of the struggle. Uh, I think there's probably many of us who have a genuine desire to meet with the Lord. Like, I want to do that. That sounds great. I can't wait. But when I go there, I just feel awkward and confused. When I try to spend alone time with God, I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like there's some technique or some method and I'm missing out on it. Like what is supposed to happen in this place? Am I supposed to be kind of reading my Bible? Am I supposed to be journaling? Am I supposed to be memorizing scripture, fasting, praying, interceding, singing, meditating, levitating? What's supposed to happen (laughs) in this place? Now, I'm all for a discussion of spiritual disciplines and things. It's awesome learning about how to study the Bible, all this stuff. But we can overcomplicate things. When really I think he's, it's quite simple. It's, it's, it's a lot like our normal relationships and dynamics we have where how do you go to be close with God? Spend alone time with Him? How do I go on a date with my wife that's meaningful? Well, we go out together. I listen to her and I talk to her. We go out and we say, God, I want to hear from you and I want to pour my heart into you. I want you to hear me. And that's about it. Those two basic things are, are what we're looking for. So you might read your Bible, let him speak to you, wait on the spirit. How are you going to apply that to me, God? And then just pray and just pray and pray and pray. And ask him to show up. Tell him you need him. And I'll tell you something, there might be times where even that seems too difficult. Even those two things seem too hard, and, and there's still another way. Sometimes all you might be able to do is get alone with God and cry. Just cry. And that's enough, too. I don't know if you remember Hagar, um, the mother of Ishmael, back in the Old Testament. But she is like driven out into the wilderness by Sarah. Because of some, you know, competitive female things, it wasn't going well. Drive uh, Hagar out. She thinks she's going to die. She thinks her, she and Ishmael are going to die. And all she can do in her desolate place is just cry. We read that in, in Genesis twenty one sixteen. She lifted up her voice and wept. And guess what, you guys? God hears her. And he moves for her good. Is it, sometimes that's all you're going to be able to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know where to, what to read. But I just know that if I try my best to draw near to him, even if all I can do is shed tears in his presence, that he will draw near to me. That is a promise. I could bank on it. So you might not feel like you know what to do, but guess what? Can you cry? Can you fall over? And say, I need you. Well, then you know what to do. You know what to do. He'll take it from there. Returning, and this is how we'll conclude. Returning to Luke's gospel, I, I wonder if you know that we owe our very salvation to the desolate place. I wonder if you know we owe our very salvation to the desolate place because it's Christ's commitment to the desolate place that keeps the divine imperative before him, right? And we will watch throughout Luke's gospel. He's going to make this kind of, this holy habit, this continual rhythm of retreating and spending time alone with his father. God, what's the must in my life? What's the imperative for my life? What's your mission for my life? And it's those times that fuel him forward towards Calvary, right? And the very last one we see the very last rhythm, holy habit, the last time we see him kind of pull away into the desolate place is there in Gethsemane, is it not? There in Gethsemane we read this. He withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And there it was. There's the tears. There's the face to the floor. There's nothing else going on. Just cries and loud, or loud cries and tears, the author of Hebrews says. That's our Savior. Pouring his heart out to his father in the desolate place. And when he rises up from his knees, he's ready for the mission. 
He's ready. He's clear. He's got the conviction. He knows what he's called to do. Therefore, Judas, do what you've come to do. Holds his hands out. Walks straight to the cross. Dies for the sins of the world. The salvation of the world. We owe our salvation to the desolate place. Our Savior went there and stayed oriented all the way to the completion of his mission. And you and I, that's our only hope. He is our only hope for living this kind of lifestyle. Like we're going to have excuses until the cows come home. Is that still a phrase? When do the cows come home? Do they never come home? We have excuses until the cows come home, right? They just keep going. Our only hope is Christ coming and living this life in us, convicting us and drawing us out into the wilderness, showing us the benefit of it, opening up our eyes so that we see the living water that is His presence, drinking it in deeply, forgiving our sin, fueling us with a new hope and desire for Him. He's done it. He's gone before us. Let's press out to Him there and let Him live His life again in and through us. The only way we're going to get through our cross, our crises, is through him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for meeting us in the desolate place. Thank you that, God, it's as we pull away from the world that we actually get clarity in it, how we ought to deal with it. God, don't let us, don't let us be mesmerized by the things around us, by the the shimmer and the shine of, of created things, by the false promises of false gods like wealth, and, 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 and career and success and the, the approval and praise of man. God, help us to pull away into the wilderness and gain clarity with you. I pray, Jesus, even this week, would you, would you, would you begin to develop rhythms in your people's lives in this way? I pray even, God, right now, Would you transform this room into that place of intimacy with you as we put ourselves on the floor and ask you for more? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.